0: Welcome to Free Speech Nation, the podcast. With me, Andrew Doyle. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Anne Whittacombe. Anne has had a long and varied political career, being uh, serving as a Conservative MP, a minister in three departments, a member of the Shadow Cabinet, and a Brexit Party MEP. Uh, she's also well known for her appearances on Strictly Come Dancing. Have I got news for you? And also was a runner-up in Celebrity Big Brother. Thank you for joining me, Anne.
1: Great pleasure. Good to be here.
0: It's quite clear uh, from that little bio that you are one of those politicians that crosses the line into celebrity culture. Do you, do you see it as a kind of extension of your political career? Are there transferable skills there?
1: No, I absolutely don't. Though I often say, obviously, just as a joke, that uh, there's a huge analogy between Westminster and pantomime, which I now regularly do. Yes, you're uh, a panto in, performer. In now. the winter, okay. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I often make that joke, but... Uh, In fact, I mean, there was no conscious crossover on my part at all. I finished at Westminster, Mm -hmm. and I had turned down Strictly Come Dancing, who'd come to me every year since 2004. I retired in 2010. Every year they came to me, every year I said, no, You know, it's inappropriate, absolutely not. Then as soon as I knew I was going to retire, I said, well, why not, I can now. Yes. And that just spawned everything. I mean, from Strictly Come Dancing came the tour, came Pantomime with Craig, Revel Horwood, uh, and then it just snowballed from there. So it it was never intended. I didn't say to myself, "I'm going to have a celebrity career." I said, "I'm going to retire to Dartmoor and yeah. you know and write and enjoy walking on the moors and things." So it <laughs> happened by accident. It happened uh, by accident.
0: Was there a reason, do you think, why uh, you were continually asked to be on these shows? Why, for instance, would they choose you rather than some other politician? Because there must be something about you that they they that appealed.
1: Well, I mean, I think they're probably the best people to answer that. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the, the reason to get me on Strictly was pretty obvious. I mean, I was the most ungainly person on the planet. Right. I was never going to dance my way any, anywhere at all. But they were desperate to have a politician. Now, the interesting thing is uh, the attitude of the journalistic profession when I uh, agreed to do Strictly, and I was the first politician to do it, though we'd had John Sargent as a reporter, but I was the first politician was that this was inappropriate, it was humiliating, you, uh, you know, it, it was degrading, I, I shouldn't be doing this at all. When a few years later, Ed Balls did it, all that had gone. Yes. So in a way, I set a precedent that was finally accepted.
0: Well, it certainly changed the uh, perception of politicians. And because and, if I think back to, say, when George Galloway went into yeah, the, the Big, big brother, brother house, yeah. he was universally slammed in the press for doing so. And his whole well he claimed that his his view on that was that he wanted to go in in order to reach Talk
1: about respect
0: Talk dear. about politics and that kind of thing By the time you uh, had been on Strictly yeah. Dancing, that changed things People started thinking maybe it's okay for politicians to, to show well, their fun side I
1: suppose I always took the line that you only do it when you leave I okay, mean as okay. I say I turned down Strictly I did some other things but they were a bit more dignified um, and I turned them down year after year after year. I certainly wouldn't have done Big Brother or The Jungle or any of those while, yeah. I, was, uh, while I was a serving politician. But my view was, if you've left, you've left. Yes. And you're entitled to live your life as you want to live your life. and You don't have the duties that you had as a politician. As I put it, I no longer owed anybody any duty of time or dignity.
0: It's a bit like when you talk to politicians have it, once they've <laughs> left, uh, they can often be more open about what they believe they're not, they're not sort of held back by the party whip or anything yeah. like that. And it can be yeah. quite liberating, I think. But there is something about um, the nature of political figures that a lot of people expect them. You, you you mentioned dignity. Yeah. You know, but there is a certain type of politician now who's quite popular. Take a Donald Trump kind of figure. Yeah. Who crosses the line from celebrity to politician yeah. from the very outset. And uh, to what extent do you think that's happened here? Well, I, I mean, I think back to Tony Blair had a very presidential style about yes, him. And, 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 and since then, it's almost... It's almost considered uh, a help rather than a hindrance to to have that popular appeal as well as retain the dignity of the role. Do you think there's a danger here?
1: Yeah, I think several things have changed. I think television has changed things massively. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think back to the days, you know, of Harold Macmillan, I mean, you would have a reporter meeting the plane, and they would say, "Oh, Mr. Macmillan, can you comment on so and so?" And he would say, "No." Yes. And they—that was it. That was and, it. And that was you it know, okay. end, end of end of end of it. He was allowed to say no. Um, we're now at the stage where you cannot say no, and what is more people want, instant reactions. Mm. I vividly remember when uh, William Hague made me shadow health secretary, and I went outside, and he called me to central office. I came outside conservative central office, massive press there, and they all said the same thing. They all said, well, Miss Whitticombe, what is your health policy? And I said, you know, I haven't a clue. <laughs> I said, I haven't been here two minutes, who know? I've walked from up there to down here, and of course I can't tell you my health policy. And I was expecting the headlines the next day to be having a clue, but yes. in fact it was such an unusual reaction that they just went with it. I
0: think you know. people are relieved when they sense just complete honesty.
1: Yeah,
0: from a politician. I mean,
1: I, I didn't have a policy then, and you know, I said yeah. to them, "I wouldn't have a policy for some weeks."
0: Um, so going back to your political career, um, so uh, uh, as you say, the celebrity aspect of stuff came later, and that was by accident yeah. almost. Um, if we go back, why did you want to, did you always know that you wanted to get yes. into politics was, yes. this is very vocational for
1: you?: Yes. I mean I wanted to be a politician from a very early age, about 14. Mm. Uh, for all the wrong reasons then, okay. because I was the, um, the post-war generation, and of course, you know, at, at that stage and it's difficult to remember now, but all the films, all the plays, all the books, they were all about the war, the whole thing was about the war. Yes. And of course the towering uh, character was Winston Churchill. And I think I seriously thought then that this is what politicians did, that they made great speeches and saved the world. Yes. And it was quite a good way of spending one's life. <laughs> By the time I was 20, I had a much more realistic appreciation of what a politician actually is and does. The desire to do it never left me. Um, and in those days, it took time. You weren't fast-tracked because you were a woman or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I fought, uh, uh, my first election was in 79. I fought a northern mining town. Uh, and then uh, my next one was marginal against David Owen down in Devonport, and then finally the safe seat, which I then held uh, throughout my political life. So I was 39 and a half before I got into Parliament. I always used to say life begins at 39 and a half. Mm -hmm. So I had a long, long apprenticeship, and regrettably you don't get that so much now.
0: And do you think then, from what you're describing, you had a kind of romanticised view of what it is to, to be a politician?
1: Oh, I mean, when I was very young, I did, yes. But I mean, yeah. that, that didn't last very long. It certainly wouldn't survive your your first campaign. No. But of course, I, do. I was doing all the voluntary stuff as well. You know, the party positions locally and yeah. local council and all that sort of thing. Did you
0: have anything in particular that you wanted to change in society? Did you have did you see things that were wrong that you you thought you might be able to make a difference through politics?
1: There were lots of things that I would have said, you know, I would do this differently. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, when you get there, very often, I mean, I went in with a terrific interest in defence. I'd been vice chairman of Women and Families for Defence, which had been set up to counter the Greenham Common People. I'd written a pamphlet on defence. Everybody assumed when I went into uh, Parliament that I would do defence select committee and, you know, no, no. I, it, it, it went the other way, um, and uh, I, I never did do defence. Now, right. I think I and everybody around me expected that I would, so you never know.
0: Right, because I was talking to Baroness Hoey about uh, politics. She, yeah. It was her view that there's a, a significant degree of careerism now within Westminster, huge. which which wasn't necessarily always huge. the case. So you think she's right?
1: I think she's 100% right. I noticed a huge change in my time. First of all, from the quality of MP. Mm. Um, When I first went into the House, I mean, in our intake, for example, there was a brain surgeon on the Labour side, Sam Goldbraith, Uh, there was a consultant gynaecologist on our side, and we just took it for granted that Parliament recruited at that level. You had very big men still at that time, you wouldn't expect it now, but from the war. Yes. I and mean, People like Gary Neeve were just before me, but you know, we had those sorts of people. Bob Boscawen, who'd been trapped in a burning tank. If you look around the House of Commons now, to find that level of achievement prior to coming into politics is actually pretty, it, it's not uh, unheard of, but you wouldn't be able to count up much more than, you know, on the fingers of one hand or yes. so. Yes. I think the quality's changed, and there are several reasons for that. One is the obsession now. Nah? on the part of both major parties with effectively quotas. You know, we must have women, we must have gays, we must have ethnics, we must have this, we must have that. They've done that not by encouraging the meritorious to come forward, mm-hmm. but by open discrimination in, in, in favour of anybody fitting a category. And I'll give you a good example of this. When mm-hmm. I left, I watched the selection, obviously, for my, um, for my seat. And we reached a point where we wanted to put into the final you know, three men and one woman. That mm-hmm. was it, we were told we couldn't do that. So we said, well, why not? Because the next woman is quite a long way down the list. You know, plenty of men in between. No, 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 you can't do that. You've got to have an equal number on the shortlist. And I actually said to the central office agent, are you telling us that we cannot select on merit? And he very truthfully said, I'm afraid so, yes.
0: That's interesting because it's often not openly admitted.
1: No. Well, it's true.
0: So when Laid- I saw it, I saw it. When Labour, for instance, have all female shortlists and and, and the like, do you feel that I mean their argument would be uh, that there's a there are kind of structural imbalances in place within Westminster and they need to be rectified through effectively positive discrimination? But you would say that mer- no. meritocracy would work if applied.
1: It, it it has to be through merit. It can only be through merit. You cannot get into Parliament just because you fit into the right category of person that they happen to be looking for at the time. And my big beef with all women shortlists is, effectively, you are saying to a male candidate who's grown up in that area, who's brought his own children up in that area, who knows it like the back of his hand, he's used the local health services, local education, you're saying to him, sorry, chum, you can't even put your hat in the ring because at the end of it, we've reserved this for a woman. Do you think
0: there's a a reason why women uh, tend not to go into politics at the same degree that as men?
1: Oh, I mean, I think, I, I know it's very, very unfashionable to say it. By all means,
0: say it. But it yeah, I will. It is a
1: fact of life that women have the lion's share of caring responsibilities in families. I mean, it's women who give birth, not men. Uh, it's women who breastfeed. It's women who look after small children at that stage. Uh, and it doesn't Always, it can sometimes, but it doesn't always go with politics. I mean, right. take the obvious uh, problem, which is distance. And if you've got a constituency in Yorkshire and a young family, and you're meant to be during the week in London, how on earth do you manage that? Do you shift the family around? Uh, do you leave them uh, uh, to a carer? Um, what do you do? You know, How do you do it?
0: Yes. See, so I often wonder about the, the... I don't know if you recall Harriet Harman having a pink bus to try and entice women into yep. politics. And, and I, uh, some of this stuff, some of this anti-meritocratic stuff strikes me as quite patronising, you know, because if a, woman, if a woman wants to Very get into politics... ...then why shouldn't she on her merit?
1: I once said this in the 1922 committee when David Cameron had gone on about, um, you know, how we, we had to promote women, etc. And mm. he introduced, in order to do it, he didn't have all-women shortlists, he had the A-list. OK. And I stood up and I said, how dare you tell me that you're going to do me a special favour in order that I can come into this place. I said, I got here on the same basis as you, sunshine. I didn't say sunshine, but but that that (laughs) was the tone of my response. And I think it's so important for women's dignity that every single woman in the House of Commons can look every single man from the Prime Minister downwards in the eye and to know that she got there on exactly the same basis as he did. Otherwise, she's a second-class citizen.
0: It's interesting to hear talk, you talk this way because th- these are the kind of views that I think uh, certain figures on the left use to attack you, to say that you're the anti-woman. Yeah, things like that. And and, and the, the, the Guardian says you have an authoritarian appeal, hard right views, and uh, and they've even called you a throwback to pre-war imperial Tories. <laughs> what you, what would you say in response to those kind of descriptions?
1: Well, I think they're facile. That's what I would say. You know, very Guardian-esque.
0: I mean, very uh, predictable of the garden, guy. Very may I say predictable, so. <laughs> and, and
1: just totally facile. Um, and so, I mean, I can't comment beyond that. No. I, I always say, you know, people sometimes write to me and say, "You think this, you think that." I say, "And, and, and your evidence?" Yes, yeah, and your evidence for what I apparently think.
0: I know I've noticed that a lot more over the last few years. This growing tendency particularly from leftist commentators, to assume that they know what you are secretly thinking.
1: They know what you think on overseas aid. I mean, I had that the other day when I was debating with somebody, and it was Andrew Adonis. He knew exactly he thought what I thought about overseas aid. He was wrong. And did
0: he back down once you'd corrected him, or...? He, oh, I think
1: did, he rather said sarcastic. Oh, good, I'm glad you think that. Okay. Something, something like because that.
0: Because you sometimes surprise people. I, I mean, you've even had p- people on the left cheering you on for your, uh, your proposal for prison reform.
1: Yes, absolutely. For,
0: for instance, which would, that, that sort of confounds expectations.
1: Well, I don't understand people who don't understand that rehabilitation isn't, as I said at party conference, some soft, wet, liberal, optional extra. It's a most crucial tool of public protection. Mm. And if we do not spend money on rehabilitating prisoners and do not put the focus on that, then the people who leave the prison gates are bad, or usually worse, than the people who came in. And that creates more victims. It creates the need for courts and sentences. It creates, therefore, hugely additional expenditure. What is the point what yeah. is the point of being against a focus on rehabilitation?
0: Well, it, it, it seems actually has quite a conservative viewpoint, really, because what you're saying is this is for, not just for the betterment of the individual, but for the betterment of society.
1: It's, for be- it's, for, it's in everybody's interest. It's in the man's, the, the prisoner's interest. It's in the prisoner's family's interest. Mm. It's in the interest of the potential victims, who, if he's rehabilitated, will not be the victims. Yes. You know, it's in everybody's interest. Why yes. can't people see that?
0: So in terms of uh, some of the views that you have that have been considered controversial, they, they tend to tie in with your religious belief, don't they? Things like your views on, on, on gay marriage, abortion, yeah. th- this kind of thing.
1: Well, um, no, abortion does not tie in with my... I mean, it does because it's there is Catholic teaching. Yes. Uh, but the fact is that I was um, against abortion uh, when I was an Anglican, when I was an agnostic, and yeah. now I'm a Catholic. And my view has not changed throughout right. because... As far as I'm concerned, there is never, um, well, in, in very exceptional circumstances, but there's pretty well never, uh, a reason to take a life. And now that we've got it up to birth, and of course we've got this challenge now going on in the courts from the, from the Down syndrome people, quite right too that they should be challenging it. We're actually saying that you can abort a child who's only a few days off being born, who is no different from the child who's going to be born, who's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You can't see it at the moment and therefore it's okay to do it. Now that's so wrong. As a result um, of joining David Alton's um, big pro-life campaigns to it, towards the end of the 80s and nineteen ninety-one, uh, as a result of joining that, I came into contact with Catholics en masse, so to speak, mm-hmm. for the first time since I'd left a conference school at the age of 18. That really was what started me on the path too, towards Catholicism. So in a way, I'm a Catholic because I'm pro-life, not pro-life because I'm a Catholic.
0: And you were at a convent school. There was an Anglican convent school. No, no,
1: no. It was quite Roman Catholic.
0: Oh, it was. But you no. were an Anglican. I was uh, an Anglican. Okay. I wondered if it was if it fell into the kind of high Catholic, uh, you know, no. high Anglican tradition. No, uh,
1: evangelical family.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, and in fact, it's where I learnt. I always say to stick up for myself because I was in a minority in that school. Obviously, it was Catholic school. Yes. And I was not only a Protestant call, I was an evangelical one, so I learned to stand up for my minority position.
0: How did right that go right. down did you ever oh they expected
1: any? That, no they, they 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 were very good the nuns, they expected you to stand, you know if if all the children in a form uh, preferred one poem and you preferred another, yeah. they wanted you to say so. Really? Yeah, they really wanted you to say so. Um, it, I was at a
0: convent school, my, my nuns weren't like that. Oh,
1: uh, mine, you, mine, were ter- mine were sacred heart nuns, I don't know.
0: Don't know. <laughs> Maybe that makes a difference. <laughs> That's very interesting. So there, there was, in spite of the religious bent of the school, there was a, a sense of tolerance, or a tolerance for different views.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, to a certain extent, There wasn't because, for example, we had to go to mass if we were boarders, which I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had to go to mass on Sundays as opposed to, you know, going out to our own service. Um, So from that point of view, the the tolerance was limited. But they never, ever, ever in that school had an ethos of suppressing what you think. Mm -hmm. You know, you said respectfully, but you said what you thought.
0: And your conversion to Catholicism came later, so 93. 93, 93, So do you think that there were any seeds sown in those early days?
1: No, because the Catholicism that I knew was pre-Vatican II. Right. Um, it was very strict. It was pretty intolerant, actually, in, in terms of religion. Um, and uh, I left um, confirmed as a Protestant. Yes. Both literally and metaphorically. And yes. Confirmed as a Protestant.
0: Well, a Catholic post-Vatican II is a very different beast, actually.
1: Totally <laughs> different beast. And I didn't meet it until I went, because one of my friends at school actually entered a convent, became a nun, Mm. and I went to the service for her final vows, and the church had changed. I mean, it was in the vernacular, they had music, and the priest didn't have his back to the people. The whole thing had changed. Uh, And uh, so it was very, very different sort of Catholicism.
0: Did that appeal to you more?
1: Yes. Mm. Yes, I've never felt easy. Um, I mean, I do occasionally go to a Tridentine Mass, Priest with his back to the people, and I feel I'm not participating in yes. this. I'm not part of this.
0: Yes, I think I think the, the changes at the Second Vatican Council were for the good. Uh, uh, I, I do, feel, and yeah. certainly did broaden the appeal of the church. Yeah. Um, do you think so? In terms of your views on uh, gay marriage and, and Section Twenty Eight, those I presume are tied to your religious perspective.
1: Well, no, um, no, uh, they are views that I I would have held anyway.
0: So can you talk us through that? So let's take section 28. Um, do you still stand by that view that you feel it, that we, it was a good idea? We did it idea? for the
1: protection of children. We wanted children to be taught uh, the, the marriage model. Yes. Um, and that was what we wanted them taught. It was not an age in which you taught them every last uh, variation that there might be. Uh, and it was only ever about promotion. It was never about explanation
0: it was so you weren't never against about preventing
1: bullying. Mm. It was never about that. You so know, would fun.
0: you have been against a teacher mentioning the reality that there are gay people in, oh, in society? Oh, good heavens
1: no. I mean, I would have expected a teacher to say that. I would have expected a teacher to say that at an appropriate age.
0: Because I think a lot of people uh, feel that Section 28, or at least a lot of the teachers at the time, felt unable or claimed that they felt unable to oh, do they even claim that. It,
1: but they weren't. They were never unable to explain. I say There's a huge difference between explaining mm. and promoting Uh, And they were never prevented either from intervening in bullying, where that was a source of bullying, which it certainly was. There's a lot of misunderstanding about Section 28.
0: So do you feel, though, I mean, I suppose the counter-argument to that is Uh, if children, if young people don't feel able to talk about their sexuality or or don't ever hear about it in schools, it's going to make their lives a lot more difficult. Would you say that that's a fair perspective?
1: No, I don't think that's true because I don't think it depends on school. I have always believed that sex education and relationship education is most properly taught at home. And parents will have two children Mm -hmm. and they may tell one things at 14, uh, and the other things at 10, Yeah. because they will make the judgment on the child. Uh, and I think that is so important. And, and the government is not this government, governments, yeah. have just taken that responsibility away from parents.
0: And do you think that more generally, that actually parents should be taking more responsibility yes. and that the yes. schools shouldn't intervene so much?
1: I do. I, I feel that very, very strongly. Unless you believe there's a reason to intervene, I you believe there's a... This child having a difficult time at home because of, of some issue, maybe around sexuality, maybe mm. around whatever it is, um, then, of course, you can intervene. But I think, in general, parental responsibility. You know, what, what are parents for?
0: The points that you're outlining here um, have often been simplified to a, sim- a simple kind of, oh, well, Anne Wittekin must be anti-gay or oh, against-gay okay. or homophobic. And it strikes me as it looks like a different perspective. What? on
1: I have a lot of gay friends. Now, that is not the issue. The issue is they have me as a friend. Right. And I once challenged Ian Doe on, uh, uh, on his LBC programme, and I said, Ian, if I thought one half of the things that people think I think, would you want to know me? And he said no. Interesting. And that, I think, is crucial. And the interesting thing was that, you know, when I went, went through a time when I was having shows cancelled and there was gross distortion of something that mm-hmm. I said, when I went through all of that, um, the people on the telephone, the people sending the emails to me were my gay friends saying, I didn't take any notice of this. So
0: I'm very interested in that. A lot of people are misrepresented and mischaracterised. I, I see it more now than I ever did before. It, it's almost a, just a given or it's a strategy that has yeah. become so commonplace. How does that make you feel? Because there's nothing you can do about it. Is oh, there's
1: absolutely nothing you can do. I mean, I can't do anything about the fact that an awful lot of people are totally convinced, I mean, wholly convinced, that it is an established fact that I chained women up in childbirth. I mean, they really think it. I mean, I actually said in the Commons, on the record, it's never been the policy of either any minister or the prison service uh, to keep people secured during mm. labour or childbirth. During labour or childbirth. Clearly. There, on the record. Yes. And yet people think they know something completely different.
0: Why do you think this has happened? Why do you think well, people are more interested in battling a mischaracterisation, uh, something in their minds?
1: I think people do not read the news or listen to the news with the attention that they would direct if they were doing a comprehension test. So okay. So things sort of go in and out. So they see the headlines about pregnant women are secured between a uh, prison and hospital. They think, oh, you know... Therefore, they are secured in childbirth. Well, nobody's ever actually said that.
0: And then that sticks.
1: That I- sticks. Because they haven't applied comprehension to it. I mean, I often say this, somebody will write and say, I said such and such a thing. Mm-hmm. And I say, go and watch the interview and then tell me what I said. Some of them will then apologise.
0: Yes. To what extent do you make the effort to correct error, er, 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 you know, erroneous perceptions or do you just let it go? Yeah, I let it go.
1: Okay. I let it go. I mean, if somebody actually, you know, emails me or writes to me, I will answer that. Yeah. Uh, but in general, no, it's, it's an absolute lost cause. Um, you know, uh, short of taking out a libel action and going to the courts, and I've been driven very close before now. Yes. Uh, short of doing that, uh, there is nothing you can do. That's
0: probably good advice. <laughs> because ev- go. everyone's every- everyone's in this position there. Um, I want to ask you a bit about, you, you gave a very, very powerful speech at the Oxford Union about free speech. Free speech. And uh, that's been viewed an, a lot online. And they,
1: and, and they voted for it.
0: Yes. So, yep. th- so you won them round. Um, <laughs> because there is a perception, isn't there, that it, actually the students are the hardest ones yep. to win round on this, on this question. Oh,
1: I expected to lose, but we won by, by miles. You know, it yep. wasn't just a narrow win. It was a huge win, huge victory. Yes. Standing ovation as well. Um, So, I mean, we we really won, but that was in the Oxford Union, which is given over to debate and to controversial debate and all the rest of it, Mm -hmm. and I think maybe it was the most likely student place that you were going to win that argument, but I, no, I really did think, and I thought, up to about halfway through the debate, I thought, you know, we're going to lose this.
0: Yes, because I've spoken recently to um, an academic at Cambridge, actually, who was telling me that his students are quite frustrated because they perceive it to be actually a minority of students who are against free speech, but they are the ones that go into student politics and they are the ones that make the most noise. And so maybe there's a misperception of the younger generation that actually it's just the louder ones that we're hearing from.
1: I mean, I think that is true. And I I think it's also true of of the Twitter rows that you Mm. get. You know, you get companies suddenly withdrawing their advertising or changing their policy. And it's quite obvious what's happened. Some press man has rung up. and He's got somebody from the PR department. He hasn't Mm. got the managing director. He's got somebody from the PR department and thinks, oh, oh you know, must, must, must calm all this down and we say we're going to review it and we're, we're, we're going to look at it. It makes it almost worth the while of that tiny minority uh, to kick up a fuss.
0: Because they always win.
1: Because they frequently win. Mm. Now, we've now got a pushback. We've got GB News, we've got the new Culture Forum, you know, we've got things going on. We're setting up our own institutions to combat the long march through the institutions, as it's called. Uh, there is now a pushback, and... Um, And I think that's pretty important. And really the way to do it was what happened with IKEA and GB News. Yes. Uh, And IKEA withdrew advertising because a few woke people complained. It was just a couple
0: of tweets, I think. Yep.
1: A very tiny number of people complained through the advertising, knee-jerk reaction. Suddenly people said, OK, well, we won't buy IKEA. We're not going into IKEA. And, And there was such a backlash that, as you know... It reverses the decision. Yes. That's what we need to do. We need actually to employ consumer power and say, OK, you can do that, but you don't expect me to come in your shop.
0: So the boycott can work both ways. boycott (laughs) can work both ways. Yes, exactly. Um, It's interesting, you mentioned there the idea of the long march through the institutions. Mm -hmm. So to what extent do you think that our major institutions, political, cultural, educational, have been to an extent captured by an ideology?
1: Well, they have been. Uh, You only have to look at the BBC. Uh, and it is hugely left-wing, and it isn't even conscious bias. I mean, their attitude towards Brexit was very, very illustrative of the whole problem. They could not believe, and this is what BBC insiders themselves say, they could not believe that the nation dared to vote to leave the EU. Well, the nation did dare, because there's a nation outside the metropolitan elite. And I think education, I mean, the case has been made that um, it was Rudy Duchka in, in the 60s who talked about the long yes. march through the institutions, and it would be a long one, but they began with teacher training.
0: I'm always a bit wary of, of, the, of the idea because it sounds conspiratorial. Of course, when when, when the likes of Ducey were yeah. talking about it, they did have a... a yeah. A, it, I mean, it's not conspiratorial because they were outlining no, this they, plan no, explicitly. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but I do wonder sometimes whether this hasn't happened more by accident, more yeah, more than one has. thing after another. You think it's...
1: Most things happen by accident. Okay. okay. Um, and it, but... I think they saw an opportunity. They embarked upon that opportunity. A lot of things then fell their way. Mm. And it's just gone on insidiously ever since.
0: But it's interesting to hear people like Tim Davie, the new Director-General, saying that he wants to address that issue uh, within the BBC. Do do you think... Do you think it's possible at this point? Because I speak to people within the BBC who say that it's too far gone and it can't be pulled well, back. Well, that's
1: why you need your own long march. What you have to do is to say, OK, you know, this has been taken over by, I wouldn't even say lefties, I've got nothing against lefties. It's, it's, it's the woke and the intolerant and those who don't want anybody else's uh, opinions to be heard that I object to. And you have to say, right, well, this has been, you know, taken over by, by people who have that sort of view. Gradually what we've got to do is and this is why education is so important because mm. the, the newcomers are coming in from the universities They're coming in from the schools, and that's where you've got to get the notion of free speech
0: Because I don't see it in terms of left and right particularly insofar as I'd say I have more economically left-wing views I think the idea of free speech though for instance is a it's, it, that, that should be embraced by yeah, left absolutely, and right Absolutely and actually what we're dealing with more is a movement which is obsessed with identity politics uh, which doesn't sit well to me with a left-wing, a traditional left-wing perspective. I can't imagine the likes of Tony Benn uh, being obsessed with identity and not class, for instance, you know?
1: No, well, he would have been obsessed by class, but that yeah. is a form of identity politics. Right. Okay. You know, there's them and us. That's identity politics. Uh, whether you're talking about rich and poor or black or white... But there are tangible straight.
0: opportunities that come out of money in um, a way that aren't necessarily true for... Or, or certainly but more it's still true. A,
1: it's still a form of identity politics. I mean, I agree with you. I think identity politics is the problem. But it's also this fostering all the time of grievance.
0: Okay. You know,
1: I mean, I'm furious on behalf of women because I think we've been really sold short. Our attitude in the 70s was, and, you know, and I amaze the younger generation in my family by telling them this, but in the 70s when I was graduating, it was perfectly lawful, absolutely lawful, for an employer to advertise a job with two rates of pay underneath, one yes. for men, one for women. That was lawful. It was lawful to deny a woman finance for no other reason than she was a woman. It was lawful to say we're only employing males. All lawful. Uh, And our attitude then was, and I was very much part of this at the time, if we can have a level playing field, we will show you that we're as good as, and in some cases, better than the men. Just give us the level playing field. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, that became completely distorted into tilt the playing field towards us. We haven't made it on a level playing field. We now want it tilted towards us. Uh, We want to make sure um, that we have all women's shortlists. You know, women should do this, women should do that. Quotas for the boardroom. That's a sellout. Mm -hmm. That's effectively saying we haven't made it. And now we want the men to patronise us and to smooth our paths for us. And that was never my idea of women's lip. My idea of women's lip was we go for it um, on exactly the same basis as the men go for it.
0: And you consider yourself a feminist?
1: I was that sort of feminist. Okay. I'm not a 90s feminist because 90s feminism uh, and what has followed it is all about whinging and <laughs> grievance and, you know, demands for special treatment. Special treatment is an insult. I do not want special treatment from anybody. I'll compete with you any day of the week.
0: I'm sure you would.
1: And uh, you might win, I might win. wouldn't matter as long as the playing field's level. wouldn't uh, matter.
0: So do you feel that, t- tied into that, is there needs to be uh, a greater sense of stoicism cultivated in society?
1: Oh, I, there should be a greater sense of stoicism, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. We we are, you know, I mean, you, there's an article in the paper that, you know, bald men are now going to need counselling because they don't bald. For PTSD. Bald. God, help us all. You know? <laughs> uh, and I mean, yeah. I mean, there is very serious stress. I mean, I, I, I do think if you've been in combat, you've probably got it. Uh, but going bald, good heavens above, come on, I suppose guys. It, if
0: that's the only problem you have, then yeah, you're doing pretty yeah, well, actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this does bring us on to this idea of grievance narratives yeah. and the idea of, of uh, victimhood almost.
1: Yeah, victimhood.
0: Was well, a way to get status. Oddly, you know, that, that there's a kind of power in victimhood now, which wasn't there before. Um, and this, I think, does connect to your debate on free speech because one of the thing, one of the main tactics of those who want to shut down other people's yeah. speech, as far as I can see, is to say that that speech makes them feel un- unsafe, unsafe, and that actually it's a threat to them to hear even hear the opinion. Which you walk
1: past a statue, you know. And or if you see statue a statue. Or... And that I mean, I walk past Cromwell's statue every day and I would dearly love to push it over, but, I mean, I wouldn't. Well, I think uh, uh,
0: Cromwell was responsible for <laughs> killing a lot of my ancestors, but I, th- Irish. I see that statue well, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. see that statue all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mention that because when the Roads Must Fall campaign was happening in Oxford, the student leader of that campaign said that he felt as though he was being punched every time he saw the statue. And it's this elevation of... of and you mentioned it in your speech, yeah. it's this elevation of, of, of language as violence which seems to have been bought across the board. People seem to be accepting this.
1: Well, I don't know that they are. I mean, a very small minority is promoting it. Mm. Um, And I think people sometimes feel coerced into accepting it. Um, But I don't know that people are convinced. I mean, every opinion survey appears to show that people are not convinced by woke.
0: But you accept that words can be hurtful.
1: Oh, words can be hurtful, but then I always say sticks and stones can break my bones, you know, but words can never hurt me. Words can be hurtful. But that's it. You cannot go through life without being hurt. You can't go through life without being insulted. You can't go through life without being offended. I am all those things several times a day. Well, you know, as I said at my speech in the Oxford Union, if you can't cope with that, be a hermit. It's an occupational hazard of being a human being.
0: So to tie that into some of the comments you've made about about blasphemy and about comedy and these sorts of things. So if you don't mind, it's not a gotcha, I've just got a no, quotation. No, no,
1: no, you, you do that. Um,
0: you've said, we have no blasphemy laws these days, but with that, with that freedom comes a responsibility, responsibility. Which should always attend the exercise of free speech. Yep. You mentioned specifically here, truth, courtesy, and an awareness of impact. And it's the last of these which is so neglected by so much modern comedy. But you wouldn't want to see a blasphemy law reinstated, or would you?
1: Well... What I've always said is this, that with freedom comes responsibility. So take the Backley and Spen teacher, yes. for example. Yes. Do I believe he should have been free to have shown that cartoon to his class? Yes. Do I believe he should have shown it to the class? No. Now, there is a distinction there. Comedy is slightly different, because you know, if you're in a comedy club, nobody goes along there expecting you to be terribly anodyne of speech. No. Uh, you know, and, and you know you take a risk the moment you walk in, and, and, and you accept that. But, but in a more general context, um, you know, I mean, I do not believe that we should use our freedom irresponsibly. We should always use our freedom not to say, oh, dear, I can't say that, but to say, maybe I should phrase it this way not because you're afraid of the consequences of saying it, but because you have a respect for the other person.
0: Yes, I I don't think there's a contradiction in saying that I I believe in civility and the importance of civility, but also freedom of speech. In other words, I would say I would rather we have a civil conversation. If you want to violate that social contract and start being rude and swearing and whatever... I, I support your right to do it, but I'm not going to approve of it. No, that. exactly. So is that the distinction you I mean? I think that's
1: a distinction, yeah.
0: But when it comes to comedy, because I saw a very interesting interview that you did with Marcus Brigstock yeah. about your record... I tried
1: to get him to understand the impact.
0: Yes, that... but you weren't saying that you should be censored, were you? No, or were you? I, don't,
1: no I didn't say that. No. I, I said that he should you know, think before doing it. I was saying, I don't think he should have done it. Yes. Um, and I was describing the impact, and, and I did it by saying, look, you know, if somebody showed you a photograph of their dead son, you wouldn't start mocking the son. Yes. Now, you know, we feel very sensitive about the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I don't think he'd thought of that before.
0: Well, it looked like he was changing his mind in real time in the interview. It's
1: almost, <laughs> a bit, almost. You
0: were talking about um, a sketch, a comedy sketch that was mocking the Eucharist. Oh, it I, was think, horrible. I think that's it was what it was. it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you were pointing out that that upsets you. Uh, and then by the end of the interview, it seemed as though he, thought, he, he he said something along the lines of, well, maybe I wouldn't do it again, or maybe yeah. I, I wouldn't yeah. support that.
1: What I tried to do, and I think what I did do, uh, and he being a reasonable human being understood what I was trying to do, I was describing to him the impact. I'm saying, look, this isn't a matter of doctrine. Yes. You know, it's not that I think you shouldn't say that because, you know, it goes against my religion. I don't think you should say that because I don't think you're aware of the impact that it has. But... I never said, but you shouldn't be free to say it. That's but, the difference.
0: Because some people in the media have said that you want blasphemy laws effective, that you want to be able to censor comedians who say certain things. And you would, what do you think?
1: I um, did not believe that the blasphemy laws should be um, completely abandoned because they act as a barrier. Um, they act as a, something that causes people to pause and think. They were never, ever invoked. You know goodness knows when there was last a prosecution for blasphemy. I think you have to go back to the seventies um they weren't invoked. I mean society had got beyond that stage um I mean there was still a law of sacrilege we't had that invoked either otherwise the Marcus Briggsx sketch would have you know would yeah. have been done under sacrilege, but I always felt that they were a sort of a stop and think mechanism um, it feels like
0: a bit of a contradiction though, no you it's know.
1: not it, it's it, a stop and think mechanism um When they were abolished, I wouldn't necessarily reinstate them because I've always said, you know, you have to move on. You know, something's happened, you move on. It's a bit like gay marriage. I've never said, you know, uh, abolish it now because that would be a politician voting for chaos, for legislative chaos. Uh, So you you just move on. Um, But I thought that the blasphemy views had merit and that they did cause you should cause you to stop and think. Now, I don't think they would have caused anybody in a comedy club to stop and think because, as I say, if you go into one of those, mm-hmm. uh, you expect to be offended. You almost want to be offended, actually. So, yes, uh, some do. Uh, uh, some do. So um, I, I think that's different. But on television, in prime time, in what was actually a, a very funny, innocent little programme, my goodness gracious me, was the, was the one in question. You know, it was just a funny programme that people loved. And suddenly... This blasphemy of the Eucharist.
0: That's an interesting distinction you're making because my view on offensive comedy is: if I'm offended by a comedian, I will choose not to go and watch that comedian. Exactly. But I still want that comedian to have the right.
1: Yeah, that's different.
0: So you're making the distinction because what you're saying is that the comedy sketch we're talking about—it was goodness gracious
1: me—was
0: yes. on a, a an ostensibly uh, innocuous yeah. um, family show. You would never have known. Show. You would have switched him. Right. So it's more the smuggling of that kind of yeah. uh, of that kind of sentiment into a mainstream uh it was,
1: and i was trying to get marcus to understand the impact of it on people listening right now you know if, if you go into a comedy club you do not go in there expecting anodyne stuff. yes um so uh, I, I, it's wholly different it's where you do it and how you do it
0: but you can see how unless people have the conversations about this how those nuances are missed oh, well. and how it just becomes
1: nuances is, is, is not part of public conversation. <laughs> nuance just, nuance doesn't exist.
0: But that's why it's good to have long form interviews where yeah, you can I actually <laughs> talk about these. The things.
1: most intelligent interview I ever had, political interview I ever had, was with Jonathan Dimbleby after I'd made a speech, I'm Shadow Health Secretary, about mm. health service and had said it wasn't going to last another 50 years, you know, and that we had to start asking ourselves the question, what would we do if we were designing it from scratch mm. now, knowing what we now know that we didn't know in the 40s. Uh, and uh, I was interviewed by Jonathan Dimbleby for fifty five oh minutes solidly, just me and him, and an audience of health workers, and I thought this is going to be awful. But in fact, it was completely intelligent because having that long a time, he was able to come back, I was able to come back, mm-hmm. I was able to supplement in a, and as as we were thinking, yes, um and it was a really sensible conversation, and the audience was not against what I was saying. Right. It was quite receptive. Might not have agreed with in you know, particular policies, but was completely receptive to the idea. We've got to rethink this.
0: Yes, which is odd. I mean, in in the current climate, with I mean, let's call it political tribalism. But people do now. There was a study recently uh, by Frank Luntz yeah. talking about how people between the ages of eighteen and thirty, uh, the majority of those people, over fifty percent of those people, have ditched friends for because political disagreements. Political views. Now, do you think this is a new phenomenon? Has it always been the yeah. case?
1: In the House of Commons, you'd have Conservatives who were friends with neo-communists. Right, really? I mean, you really would, yeah. I mean, you had, um, you had Janet Fuchs being very friendly with, for example, Willie Hamilton, you know, the anti-monarchist, d- 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 very far lefty. Uh, you, you get that the whole time. I mean, my best friend in Parliament w- was a Lib Dem. Now, that was because we made, it was David Alton, we made common calls on the pro-life issues, etc. Yes. Um, but he became, therefore, a, a close friend. I have friends from all parts of the political spectrum. I have Catholic friends, Anglican friends, atheist friends. You know, I have, I have gay friends and straight friends and old friends and young friends. And I cannot imagine saying to any of them, um, I don't want to be friends with you anymore because you think this... I'd rather discuss why they think that, or if I think they're too emotional about it, I'll say, look, let's, you know, let's just move on, let's talk about something else.
0: Have you ever uh, lost friends over political disagreements? Uh,
1: people have blanked me, yeah. I right. have never blanked anybody else ever over a political disagreement. Uh, and I say people, that's a lie, actually, one. Okay. One, okay. yeah. Yeah.
0: Because I mean, I, I know Northern Ireland's a different situation, but I've been into City Hall oh. in Belfast with a UUP uh, member who, yeah. and I said, th- and he said, this is the room where the, the Unionists sit, and I said, well, did Sinn Fein ever come in here? Did the SDLP ever come in? And he said, absolutely not. not. There is no, there's, there's no.
1: I there's, I was very interested actually because I made common cause with Ian Paisley over things like abortion law and and, and moral law and that sort of stuff in the House of Commons. So I, I got on quite well with him. Mm-hmm great friends, but we, we got on perfectly well. We used to joke with each other in the lobbies. And then I was doing a programme on the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And I went over to interview Ian Paisley in Stormont. And I failed to think this is going to be a different man from the one the quite mellow chap I know in the House of Commons. Right. And I said to him, And and and, and so now, you know, what talked about some of the things he'd said in the past and said, so now uh, what would you say about, for example, the Pope? <laughs> He's the son of perdition and the Antichrist, says Ian Paisley. Wow. And I thought, okay. When was this? When did you? I made that programme. It would have been around about uh, 2000, and uh, I was still in Parliament. I hadn't left. Be round about 2005-ish. Okay,
0: because I associate that kind of rhetoric with the early Paisley. Yes, so do you I. You know, the, the pulpit but Paisley. But this was in Stormont. Ah, okay, that's see, very that's interesting. the
1: point. I mean, in Westminster, he'd got quite mellow. Yes. And as I say, we'd always been... You know, he knows I'm a Catholic. He used to joke, he used to call me a take, which is a rude word for Yes, it's a very rude <laughs> word. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but he, he... And that was perfectly all right as far as he was concerned. But get to Stormont, and it was a very different story. Isn't
0: that interesting how context
1: it's Very different stories. yeah.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, to think of Paisley being... Because even towards the end, he started being a friend with Martin McGuinness. And people yeah. would, I don't think people could comprehend how that had happened. People so, you know, diametrically opposed, yeah. finding common cause or finding common humanity, I think. And and so it, if that's possible, then surely...
1: I uh, think the Northern Irish situation got to a pitch where everybody was saying, enough.
0: Yeah. Let yeah let's yeah. find
1: some way out of this. Yes. Enough. Um, now, there were still fanatics on both sides who didn't want to find a way out of it. Yeah. Uh, but by and
0: large, I think people say, "Oh, yeah, no, absolutely." So on this question of of political tribalism, what can we do as a society to rectify this? Because it's clearly a problem, oh, it's,
1: yeah, it's, um, and and and
0: it's clearly a generational problem. Yes, that that it's you're more li- likely as a young person. And I see the way people behave on Twitter, uh, and, and you know the way they 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 create their own echo chambers. They don't want; they just want their existing views reinforced rather than challenged. And when you get into that, and Brexit, I think was the thing that torpedoed this.
1: education. Education. I I, I mean, I see it as the teacher's duty to teach children not what to think, but how to think, Mm -hmm. how to analyse, you know, how to think. Um, And just now, when I said people do not approach the news as if they were doing a comprehension test, you know, they'll only give it sort of half that, I I think, you know, children should be taught very close analysis, rigour, rigour of thinking.
0: But that's hard when teachers are increasingly... Saying that they are under pressure to push a certain ideological line. If we go back yeah. to the the woke idea, yeah, uh, you know, we have recently, last week, it was the National Education Union issuing a, a report saying they wanted teachers to be activists, to decolonise yeah. curricula, to, to 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 push the narrative of critical well, race theory. In who's other in words. charge
1: of education. Government government is in charge. Uh, government could make it very clear in the curriculum that you know, if you're teaching the British Empire, you have to teach the good and the bad. That you have to put slavery into context. You know that people had owned slaves for thousands of years, Um, uh, that it wasn't a uniquely white crime, even if in the latter stages it it, it seemed to be. Um, And I think you can say you must teach impartially. Now, if the government is able, as it is doing at the moment, to try and enforce free speech in universities by bringing in a system of penalties, um, it is able to do the same in education, and, and the curriculum should reflect, as I say, not what to think, but how so I think
0: that's an interesting question the curriculum has for a long time uh, had the teaching of the slave trade and and all of these yeah. these these facts of history that kids should know about I think yeah. uh, um and it has been there um and activists are saying that it should be more so um and that there's an argument there's a debate to be mm. had about what should be on the, on, the, on the curriculum um but it's the impartiality issue that's so interesting I don't feel personally and maybe you can correct me on this yeah. I don't think the government is aware of how serious this problem is, because it doesn't seem to be doing anything about it.
1: I think they're aware of it. Um, They've got other things on their mind. Okay. And it's going to be quite a complicated task to get around it. Now, just as I think Michael Gove, uh, with whom I've had many, many differences as a politician, but Michael Gove actually understood rigor in education. He was trying his level best to get rigor back Mm -hmm. in. So you didn't just get everybody with A stars and almost have prizes. Uh, And he was trying to get that back in. Now, you need an education secretary with the the same rigorous attitude towards free speech and teaching a balanced curriculum. Yes. You need exactly the same because if children learn at school that there are different views um, and that, of course, you will decide that one view is more valid than another because that is what what having an opinion means. It means you've made that decision. Um, But that doesn't mean that the other person doesn't have a right to come to a different conclusion. I can't see what's so difficult about
0: that. Well, I I can't either. But it's it seems to be an increasingly controversial idea, and I do worry that maybe the debate around Brexit uh, yes. made this worse. Insofar as you had seventeen point four million people smeared as racist yeah. and idiots, and oh, idiots.
1: A, we didn't know what we were doing. Apparently.
0: Yes, yes. Even though there were months of debate on the subject, and people seemed to be more politically energised than they ever had been. Um, but it's it's interesting that that kind of Attitude and misrepresentation, which still lingers online. Yeah. I mean, you know the, the, that the Brexit divide is oh, still there. It, it
1: lingers, and and that uh, is one where people were, a uh, ditching friends. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they really were. I mean, I lost what? friends over Brexit. Yeah, one of my <laughs> fellow MPs, David Bull, MEPs, David Bull, um, he lost friends. You know, yes. friends are very long-standing because he was a Brexiteer. Well, what the matter with people?
0: Well, at that point, it felt as though Westminster, as well was becoming quite toxic yeah. uh, over over this and. I, I don't know if you can put the genie back in the bottle. You know, I think I think that's no. You
1: can't. You have to move on. You can't put. The, you can never put the genie back in the bottle. You know, it's what I was saying just now is something's mm. happened. It's happened, and you get legislative chaos if you just try to change it. Uh, but what you can do is you can try and shift things okay. so that they're going in a different direction. They will not reach that direction overnight, but you can. And I think it's crucial that free speech is is actually taught in schools and is taught as as a moral obligation. You know, you may furiously disagree with somebody, and you're fully entitled to do that. What you're not entitled to do uh, is to stop them expressing their view unless, of course, it is a direct uh, incitement to hatred.
0: So that would be your limit on the free speech issue. It it comes down to incitement.
1: But you see, I grew up... I mean, I agree, yeah, it does come down to incitement, and real incitement. I grew up in in the post-war period when people had lost husbands, sons... Um, brothers to the Nazis, people had lost their homes, they'd been mm. bombed out, uh, and it, it was horrendous. And yet, and yet, people like Oswald Mosley and then his successor Colin Jordan, were able to hold their rallies, were able to proclaim themselves Nazis, were able to talk about the British Union of Fascists. And you think how much that must have hurt people who yes. just endured a six year war against them. And yet, we believed in free speech. And the same thing happened when the Cold War started. I mean, there they were, weapons lined up, we forget this, pointed straight at us from the borders of the Warsaw Pact countries. Straight at us. Um, And we were fighting a a nasty Cold War in which people, businessmen, were seized and were called spies and all the rest of it. And yet, you could still be a communist. You could stand for uh, the Communist Party. Uh, You wouldn't get in, but you could stand... Uh, for Parliament, you could sell um, the Daily Worker on on street corners. You could you, you could say, brothers, you know, we must join in this fight. You could say all of that. We didn't censor.
0: Yeah. So what's happened?
1: Works happened. Okay. Yeah,
0: I think I would agree. That's very interesting.
1: And it's what I said when, at the Oxford Union. I said, yes. you, you just, you just I grew up with that, and I took that for granted, and I could see that that was having quite an impact on them. Because the idea that, you know, you tolerated a fascist. Yes. Well, you probably wouldn't want to be friends with a fascist, but you said free speech. We'll That's defeat them other ways, and we did.
0: The question we of did. incitement, though, because, because if we say incitement is the, the limit, which I think is a sensible thing to say, but then the, the concept of incitement has been modified, so people oh, course, will now as, say, yeah. they will say now, even an, an opinion that I disagree with is incitement. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's spread so far. Then even yeah. that isn't understood. You no.
1: need a narrow, de- you need a really narrow definition of incitement. I mean, it is not incitement to racial hatred to say that you think that immigration is out of control. That is not incitement. Um, it is incitement if you say, right, you know, let's start putting them on the boats and send them back tomorrow morning. You know, that's that's
0: incitement. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you can see that finding that line is hard. But when I heard, for instance, Boris Johnson in Parliament using the metaphor surrender bill, and he was accused of inciting violence through military metaphors, right? So that's obviously nonsense. It was a
1: surrender bill. Yeah, it was a
0: surrender bill. It's interesting that with Brexit, because that was the thing that drew you back. Yeah. So you must have felt incredibly passionate. What, what, what What were your feelings at the time you joined the Brexit party? If
1: you had told me even in March 2019, that in a month's time I was going to leave the Conservatives after 55 years, I was going to join the Brexit party, and then that I was going to become uh, an MEP. I mean, an MEP. I was so glad to have got rid of Westminster. I was (laughs) going to become an MEP. Uh, I would have laughed you to scorn. But I just so resented the fact that the supposedly democratic authorities in this country were trying to thwart the will, the democratically expressed will Mm -hmm. of the British people. And I just thought, enough. I I just one day literally said, enough. And I pulled out my mobile phone. I was um, by a Norwegian fjord at the time. I always joke (laughs) that I stood by a fjord and crossed a Rubicon. But I pulled (laughs) out my mobile phone. I phoned Nigel Farage.
0: That's interesting that it happened so quickly.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. And he said, you know, "Do, do you want to stand? I said, yes. He said, do you want to stand seriously or be a runner and rider? I said, no, 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 I want to get in.
0: It's interesting to hear that story. And, and I have heard Claire Fox talk about her story about this. And, yeah. it, and although politically you come from yeah, such different...
1: Com- completely different ends of the spectrum. But yeah. she
0: was saying that it was this sense of the, the injustice of ignoring.
1: We were all outraged. Yeah. Left and right, we were all outraged.
0: And do you think that, that, that Parliament were trying to st- to stymie it? Yes, they of course were, they were. Yeah.
1: Of course they were. I mean, Parliament was, was adrift from you know, from popular opinion. Parliament wanted to stay. Mm. The country wanted to go. How did you find Brussels?
0: <laughs> Your expression says it all. I, I'm, very,
1: I'm very glad it was only for seven months. I mean, I was, I was dreading because with every time that the thing was put back, yes. you know, there was a few more months of this, it was every bit as bureaucratic as I thought it would be. It was a right. hugely spendthrift, enormously spendthrift institution. Um, and uh, you could, not remotely democratic. Um, I know things are not decided by yes. a vote in Parliament. And uh, you all speak for one minute each. Well, you can say a lot in a minute, can't you? I thought it was a farce.
0: Did you have experience of Brussels before? Was this your first? No, it was experience? my first. Because a lot of people say that the, having been there and experienced how it works, they, they, it, it almost reminds them of why we voted why, to leave. Yeah. That it is a bureaucratic yeah. institution. Oh, as I, mean, I,
1: I, I mean, I actually said that in, in one of my speeches. You know, I, I said, you know, if you needed any confirmation of what this is about, you know, today, this was the day that Fontalayan was mm. elected, in inverted commas, I said, you know, this is, this is it.
0: Yes. And how did the others react to you there? Did the, once... Well,
1: the interesting thing is that people rather liked us because really? it's a terribly worthy place where everybody speaks for a minute on worthy things. And we came along with a slight element of, of political hooliganism. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and when we left, a lot of people said to us, well, you know, we don't agree with you, but you have livened the place up. Yeah. I think they were quite sad to see us go. Oh, really? Yeah. That's
0: not what I expected you to say. Yeah. But <laughs>
1: uh, well, I'm sure some of them were glad to see us go, but, but um, uh, some of them were actually, you know, they'd enjoyed it. They'd
0: Do you think, think if we it. voted again now, people would vote to leave? Oh, yes.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that when you look at it... Now, I mean, first of all, von der Leyen tries to close the Irish border without even talking to the Taoiseach. Never yes. mind our sooner know, didn't talk to the Taoiseach. Then you had Macron uh, threatening to turn the lights off in the Channel Islands. Mm. And the more you look at their behaviour, and I've had some Remainer friends say to me, mm. if they had to do it again because of this behaviour, they would vote leave.
0: Do you think it's spite because of the vote? Or do you think it, they... they Sorry, Kim.
1: Spite is the wrong word, mm-hmm. um, because I think what they are determined to do is to make sure it's so difficult for us that nobody else wants to leave. Mm. And Barnier said that in terms. He said, we've got to be punished for leaving. Um, so I don't think it's spite so much as, look, if we're to keep this thing together, we've got to make it very difficult to go.
0: Yes. So the punishment for leaving is actually more a deterrent for other countries. That's
1: right. That's right. Well, there, vengeance against us. I yeah.
0: suppose there's something quite strategically sound about that. If you if you go, if you take oh, that...
1: If you just look at it as a strategy, it's extremely sound.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. So what's next for you? What are you going to be working oh, on? Oh,
1: I haven't a clue. Okay. Um, I really haven't a clue. Um, and I usually say that because, as I say, I would never have predicted in March what suddenly happened in my life in yes. 19 and 20 and the way I spent my life then. So I don't really know. Um... And I've given up making predictions about what I'll do when I leave Parliament because they've all turned out to be completely false. Yes. Uh, so I don't know.
0: You just—you do seem to find yourself in situations certainly which, do. which you don't necessarily I certainly predict. certainly do, yeah. Well, uh, thank you Anne so much for joining me. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground We there. have, covered a huge <laughs> amount, yeah. Thank you very much. Please join me next time on uh, Free Speech Nation, the podcast.